Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, listeners, Jeff and I are out of pocket this week for some company meetings. So in lieu of a new newsy show, we're sharing the whole first episode of Jeff's new project, First Edition, right here in this feed. If you like what you hear, and we certainly think you will, the second episode is available now as well. Just search for First Edition in your podcatcher of choice, and we'll be back here in your ears next week with more news of what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Just before I get started, I want to say thanks for giving this first episode a listen. I, I've been thinking about the show for at least eight years, and I'm excited to get rolling. If you do want to keep up with the show on social, links to Twitter and Instagram are in the show notes, and there's also a free Substack that will have some extra stuff too. And this is the most important part. I want to hear what you think. This is going to be a work in progress. Some of this stuff will work, some of the stuff won't. But if you have an idea about who you'd like to hear from or what the show could do, please, please write to me at firstedition at bookriot.com. First edition just spelled out like it sounds. I will write back even if it's just to say thanks. And if you do like the show, tell someone about it. And if you don't know anyone who might like it, or even if you do, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, I think that's it for now. Let's go. And this inaugural edition of First Edition, my longtime podcast running buddy, Rebecca Shinsky, joins me to try to pick the It book of April. Sarah Bakewell comes on to talk about her new book on humanism. It's called Humanly Possible. And Simon & Schuster senior editor Yadon Israel comes by to discuss how hard it is to put books in the world, why to do it, and the book business in general. Hope you'll stick around for that. Let's get into it. All right. It makes sense that Rebecca Shinsky, my longtime podcasting running buddy, kicks off the first segment of the first episode of this first edition podcast for a couple of reasons. One is you and I have tried to talk about new books in different ways for what, 10 years, Rebecca? Is it, <laughs> We've been More trying to figure out that. how to do this for 10 years. <laughs> and you yes. know as well as I do and as well as anyone does let's just call it what it is, the impossibility of doing the segment what we're about to do, which I'll get to right now. We're going mm-hmm. to try to pick the it book of the month. And we're going to do that for a couple of reasons. One, it's fun. Two, it's hard. And three, uh, we're interested in it. So that's kind of where we are here. And here's, here's the reason it's hard. If you're a book person, if you're listening to this, you know how impossible covering books, there's too many books. There's so many books yes. in so many genres and we don't get that much information. It's so fragmented that it's extremely, extremely hard to cover. And the only thing I don't understand is how to do this. So the only way I know how to do it is try. 
right? So mm-hmm. the gimmick I came up with, Rebecca, you and I have been trying to come up with gimmicks, and this is the most recent gimmick. And sometimes we find ones we like, and sometimes we don't. And we'll see how this goes. We haven't done this before. Is I have gone and picked 10 books being published in April that I think are contenders to be the it book of the month for various reasons, which I'll get into the criteria I think we both have in our mind. And then we're going to go down the list and it's a knockout round. So the first one is the winner by default. And then this, we'll talk about that for a couple minutes. And then I'll present the second book in the list and we'll say, okay, kind of like a March Madness style where there's only one mm-hmm. winner per round. And by the end, whatever book wins the last matchup, we say that's the it book of the month. Now, the question you should be asking if you're listening, what is it book means? I don't know, um, except <laughs> that I feel like I know at the same time. So tell me, Rebecca, if this makes sense to you. It is some alchemy of if the book is good, caveat, caveat, mm-hmm. if it has some juice in the industry, right? Publishers, writers, editors, whatever, think it's interesting. Three, it sells, right? It has to, it has to, have, some, yes. it has to have some element of sales. And then sort of four... Um, it feels like it's something that may endure. It may it may exceed the kind of moment. And you have you throw those things into the pot and you kind of see. Now, if something is going to be the bestseller by a wide margin, it might not be enough because that could be just a run-of-the-mill John Grisham book, right? It can't just be that. Correct. It also can't just be all the literary hipsters are into it. Now, maybe there's a situation where it's such a big deal. Like the one I'm thinking about is Spare, the Prince Harry book. Mm-hmm. Not a book you and I care about. It sold a bunch of copies. I don't know if it's going to do or not. I don't even know it's good, but it kind of didn't matter. The zeitgeistiness and the sales were just enough to blow out other the categories. So, Rebecca, right. is, it, is my head screwed on at least not incorrectly <laughs> about how we're doing this or how we should think about this? Yeah, I think that's mostly right. And mostly right is about as right as you can get when you're trying to capture something like this that is kind of ineffable that you could have a book that's really big on one or two of those elements that you were describing. And as you were saying with spare, like it wouldn't matter that it didn't have a third or a fourth of the elements. You can have some books that ring all four of those bells and still don't feel like the it book. And so there's also just this, you know it when you see it thing that is frustrating because it is impossible to explain and it's impossible to predict, but we we do see this in the industry. You know when a book has become the it book. We also know when we're seeing publishers try to position a book as an it book, <laughs> that's but true. that's really difficult very and very rarely successful. So I think these are, this is a good framework to start in, and I like this knockout round flavor. We haven't tried this yeah. before. I'll say I have done no homework uh, as requested for this. Yes. So Thank you the very only. Much. April titles that are even kind of floating around in my mind are the ones that I had earmarked for myself to take a look at coming out next month. There's a handful of those, but I didn't revisit my long list from the spring books draft that we did over mm-hmm. on the Book Riot podcast Patreon. I've really, I'm trying to come in fresh, so I'm really looking forward to the surprise of what you've picked here. And I, I think April is an interesting month because from my recollection, there aren't a lot of like big shiny titles there's not like a tuesday in april where 19 things are coming out that are all going to be competing against each other so finding it is maybe this is even harder this month than it would be in most months i think it's harder but it's kind of fractal right it's it's a smaller harder problem that will have a bigger harder problem time within may because i was looking at may and there's a bunch <laughs> is it harder where there's a bunch of contenders or fewer contenders i, I don't know the answer to that yeah. i think we'll, we'll kind i gotta of find tell out. you 
I am already dreading being here to do October. Yeah, that's <laughs> so. going to be 150 titles. I didn't tell you this, but we're going to do 150 title knockout rounds. It's October. a week long episode of First Edition. Yeah, right. Just we're going to live stream us. it for charity for 24 hours. It's going to be a marathon. <laughs> Um, so I picked 10 titles and I kind of used my own filter. Um, and some of these, I, th- I don't think are really contenders. I think are worth talking about or have like one of the quadrants they're okay. especially strong in, but then I, then I random.org them. So I didn't put them in any strategic, num- any strategic right. pattern. If I had done mm-hmm. the pattern for drama purposes, I would have done something else, but I, I tried to make that a part of it. Okay. Let's get to book number one. Um, wonder boy. It, this is a mm-hmm. book about Tony Shea, the co-founder of Zappos, and who was one of the, you're going to read a profile about what's right with tech in Silicon Valley. They're going to mention Tony Shea. If you know the story at all, it does not end well for Tony Shea. Um, And it's a very human. It's a very messy, very compelling, cautionary tale, character study. The authors of this are Angel Awen and David Jeans. Both of them are investigative reporters in the business world, one for the Wall Street Journal and one for Forbes. I'm guessing if I, if I had to guess which one might have been on your list, I would guess you had Wonder Boy circled. What yes. about this book as a contender for the it book? Strengths and weaknesses, Rebecca? Mm, well, strengths are there is something to talk about. You can imagine like the Today Show segment about it. There's a way to spin this towards sort of the mainstream reader of like, the untold story or like the seedy underbelly yeah. of what happened at this company that you like, you're right. You can't read a business book with modern profiles and not hear a story about Zappos nonfiction, unless it's self-help is a tough sell uh, for an it book. So that goes against it, but this might snag that like that sort of business. It might be sticky enough that the business reader of airport books could do some stuff with this. You've I don't have know. some bad blood in you. And I think that's what you I was do. thinking about here is that there is, there's a juicy story here and it's a dark one. Um, mm-hmm. my other thought here is about this exercise in this book in general is we may not know for six months, what was the book <laughs> of the month? Because if this gets announced two months after as being an Apple TV plus series, right. Correct. With, you know, Henry Golding or someone playing, Tony Shea, then this, the, the future of this gets really elevated. I know. Um, I, I really wonder if the authors of this book are sad that they didn't publish it two years ago so that they could have been in last summer's run with yeah. the shows about WeWork and Uber uh, and about uh, Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. But there, I mean, there's a lot of interest in that. Yeah. So I think it's possible, maybe not the, if I were looking at a list of books of April, probably not the one I would have put at the top yeah. of the list. So I'm, I, I'm maybe skeptical that this is going to come out on top at the end of our round, but definitely one to have an eye on. And I think both you and I will be reading this for what it's Absolutely. worth. Yeah. This is, yes. if I'm doing my own power ranking, this is way towards the top. Mm-hmm. Number two, I put on here, I've read half of this book. I'm in the middle of it. That's something I should say. A couple of these I've read, I'm reading a little bit in, more into the front list or yet to be released. Okay, so debut novels, you shouldn't include them, Rebecca, in this. <laughs> right, it, you should not. Because <laughs> to the first order of a first approximation, zero of them will matter, right? It, debut debut mm-hmm. authors are hard. Fiction is hard in general. So having said that, maybe you want to take a flyer on a long odds one. So that's one that's here. I think the pitch is really interesting. Um, and then I really like the half of the book that I've read so far. So having said all okay. that, the book is Camp Zero. It's a debut novel by Michelle Min Sterling. And the comps here are Station Eleven and The Power. So Station Eleven, of course, mm. is Emily St. John, St. John Mandel's book. And then the TV show. And The Power is Naomi Alderman's, you know, spec fic book about women mm-hmm. in power. And there's, 
show about that coming show about that coming out too um so this one is something very bad has happened the main character the point of view character you start out with at least is coming to this camp far in the north of canada there's been some sort of climate apocalypse i don't know if it's the cruel it's an accrual apocalypse like the one we get in the wall street journal every day it's like if you don't throw away your plastic cups by 2020 2038 Mm -hmm. you know all the zebras are going to burst into flames i don't know if it's that or there's been a meteor or a volcano or whatever but doesn't matter you go up to Canada because it's still habitable there. And the main character is a sex worker that's sort of brought in to go to this camp. But there's more to her story. I think it's really interesting. I think it'd have some crossover appeal. The problem is it's a debut novel. Is this was If this was someone's second novel that had a little bit of juice, I'd be more higher mm-hmm. on it. As it I, maybe even would be my number two or three draft pick. But I think it's the kind of book it got a Publishers Weekly starred review. They're putting some money behind it. So you haven't read this book. From a pitch, mm, zeitgeisty point of view, that's what we're going here with, going pitch, zeitgeisty, and it's also upmarket literary spec fic, which is in the pocket, right, for at the, at the basically pinnacle of literary culture right now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So your question character... is, does it drop, does it punch, all you have to decide right now, does it knock off Wonder yeah. Boy? That's all you have to decide, but I'm give pondering. some feedback on the book itself. I think I'm sticking with Wonder Boy here. Um, debut fiction is really hard. Yeah. When you're publishing debut fiction with sticky current topics like this, the zeitgeisty stuff that you were talking about, what you're really hoping for is the book club crowd. And mm. to hit the book club crowd, the book cannot be too edgy. Like just edgy enough, just pushing I current events right enough. I'm concerned about, I mean, me personally. Dystopian no, sex not, workers? For, You're not saying yeah. that's the meat, the meat and potatoes of the book club crowd, Rebecca? Hmm. I think that dystopian sex worker is a tough sell for probably a good third of the Reese yeah. Witherspoon book club crowd. They're going to skip that one. Hmm. And so that's why I'm going to stick with Tony Shea. Okay. I think that's fair. I'm glad to talk about it. Keep uh, Also, so if it wins the National Book Award or it's a Penn Faulkner finalist and sells a bunch, maybe <laughs> we, we don't know. Maybe and could do. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it before. So no. this one's going on my list. So this, you know, 10 minutes here has already been worth it for yeah, me. That's April 4th, I should say. And then Wonder Boy is April 25th. I guess that's a nice transition to my third contender. Um, romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld, who... I think sits comfortably at the center of commercial fiction at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the pitch here, Kurt and Sedefeld has written, boy, I'll prep. I, uh, is that her best known book? Am I thinking about I it? Think so. I don't have it in front of me. She also wrote This American Wife. Uh, Sisterland, eligible. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the most recent was The Rodham, this um, literary imagining of Hillary Rodham Clinton as a, as a young woman. So this is called Romantic Comedy. In the pitch here, it's set in a, it's fiction, it's a novel, set in the world of a Saturday Night Live, Night Live-like show, which I think is fun. I think that's a, mm-hmm. that's a fun idea. Um, I've liked almost everything I've seen is set in Saturday Night Live-like um, Milou's like 30 Rock or Studio 60, various, various yep. successes. And I know it's going to be a shock to you that two of the writers have a thing or maybe have, have one, a thing. <laughs> and then one of them falls, gets into a relationship with one of the guest hosts who tend to be much more famous people in a Saturday Night Live world. And then someone writes a sketch about that relationship for the show, which is a juicy <laughs> moment, I think. Spicy. Yeah. It, 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 instead of saving it for the group text, they saved it for the group sketch, I guess, in this particular. <sighs> for and the whole world. For the whole world. And it gets messy. But 
it is a romance, right? Romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. So you kind of know where it's going to go. Curtin Sentenfield, that's called romantic comedy. Rebecca, will this knock off Wonder Boy to be the, our number one contender for It Book of the Month? I think it will. I have read some middling reviews of it. I don't think that matters. It says what it is on the box. (laughs) It's a romantic comedy. Sittenfeld writes a good, like, beach reedy, page turner kind of situation. Like, you're not going into a Curtis Sittenfeld novel because you're looking for high literary art. These are, like, quality, upper middle brow. I think that's fine and good. And she's very good at it. And, like, I was the one kind of I was skeptical when Emily Henry first came out and I was like, they're seriously just calling this book Beach Read. (laughs) But that seems to be a very successful strategy. Yep. (laughs) So calling a romance romantic comedy. I think it's very smart. It seems to be of the moment. And I love the vibe like the summer camp vibe of Mm -hmm. a workplace like SNL, where everybody's all in each other's business. I think that's a lot of fun. I am already more interested in watching the adaptation of this than (laughs) reading the book. Sketch comedy on the page is super hard, right? It is. You can see that being performed in a slightly different way. Any anytime you're writing a book where there's another art form in it, that means you have to write a good book and a good version of that other art mm-hmm. form, right? Like we talked about this in uh, when we talked about tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Not only have to or write Daisy a good Jones. novel, you have to write a good video game or a good song or a good poem or anything else like that. Very difficult. I I, I think that's right. I agree with you that right now, romantic comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld is the um, the champ. All right, next. I'm going a little bit more. I picked this for this reason, but it came up in the random order. Just here is what it is. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Let's go. What about the sentence? The quality of the line. Sometimes mm-hmm. can it be mm-hmm. enough? You and I both like memoirs by poets. Um, not Ooh. typically a great seller, but they can be a mover. They can stick around, and you could make this place beautiful. A memoir by Maggie Smith is gonna be a book that's in a lot of literary tote bags on the F train in Brooklyn this summer. Is it going to sell enough? Is it going to be good enough? You know, sometimes you get a Terry Tempest Williams. Sometimes you get a magical thing. Or, um, my year of, uh, God darn it. What's the Joan did? The year of magical, year thinking. of magical thinking. You get these from time to time. And these are, these are a slow comer. So if this happens, it will not sell very much, but then get picked up. It'll be number 10, 11 on the, hardback nonfiction bestseller list for like 30 weeks and then goes into the fall and it becomes a book you get for Christmas or something else like that. That's my case for this. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't pretend it's going to sell more than romantic comedy, but it's enough of the other things, I guess, to be our number one contender for April's April. Yeah. I'm going to let this knock out romantic. Comedy. Wow. Tell I me about that. If, An upset. I think if there, yeah, if there is a poet memoir that could knock out something that's like bubblegummy and fun, like Curtis Sittenfeld. I think it's this. And it's because she has that one poem, Good Bones, that literally everyone and their mother has posted on Facebook at some point. And if they are marketing the book in that way to reach that audience, I know I've seen the cover of this and it's floral. And I'm pretty sure it even says like author of Good Bones. (laughs) I didn't see that. I actually, I'm looking in Edelweiss right now. It doesn't have that, but they should put that on there. They should, or like connect it. Maybe it'll be connected to the marketing Mm -hmm. somehow. Also, this is coming out right when people need to buy books for Mother's Day. It's a wonderful thing. And I think that that could give it a bump in sales for late April, early May, as folks are doing that. This is a Mother's Day, spring mom birthday situation. Might have a long tail on it. 
Yeah, if anybody's going to knock out something popcorny, it's going to be Maggie Smith. So a little bit of an upset, but I am going to stand by it. I think it's telling that it made the most ante- anticipated books of 2023 list of these publications. Book Page, which is a industry rag, essentially. Mm-hmm. Newsweek, can't get any more mainstream than that. <laughs> nope. um, Good Housekeeping, that's book there clubs and moms. There it is. And Lit Hub, mm-hmm. which, is the, which is the elevated, right? That's the, that's yep, the, yep. the snob taste, you know. I, we like LitHub. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I, I read LitHub. I am a LitHub reader, uh, both both metaphorically. <laughs> they know and what actually. they're about. They know what they're about. <laughs> um, and then Zibby, uh, which yep. is mm-hmm. you know this is a place that's about kind of this space. So I, I think I don't know that I would have come up with myself, but your the mom the Mother's Day thing you said and the the ubiquity the virality of that single poem gives the, her enough name recognition. That and it isn't helps. the title, isn't You Could Make This Place Beautiful from Good Bones? I just, I think there's some connection. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I didn't get there. that deep into the weeds on it. Okay. Um, there's no transition to Small Mercies by Dennis Lehane. Dennis Lehane returns. <laughs> wow, that is a hard right I mean, turn. I mean, the random, random.org has no mercy for me. Um, this coming out from Harper, uh, April 25th as well. Dennis Lehane. You and I are not connoisseurs of the crime novel, but we we know enough to know that Lehane is one of the leading lights. So his best known mm-hmm. book... I'm a like, oh, go ahead. half connoisseur of the movie based on a Lehane that, There you go. Yeah. Mystic River, right? <laughs> Sean Penn really going full Sean Penn mm-hmm. in that scene everybody knows. Um, it sounds like hard to know in pre-publication blurbage and, and, and talking about these books, but it sounds like this is a excellent version of Lehane. Um, Mm. it also has a wrinkle. It feels like he's dealing with race in a way, trying to incorporate race, which I don't think he's really done before. Interesting. Um, there's a couple of deaths. One is a white person and one is a black person and they seem unrelated, but I, I don't think this is a spoiler when it sounds like it turns out they are going to be related. No, no mystery or thriller has ever had two unrelated deaths in the first 20 pages. That's not (laughs) how these things go. Um, there is a really, really, um, good blurb from Gillian Flynn. I don't, Sometimes we can, this is a whole nother episode of what blurbs we pay attention to. I do pay attention to Gillian Flynn. It's not even her imprint. It's not her publisher. Um, So this comes out April 70s crime books, kind of a hard ask. But right now, I think he, of the people we've talked about so far, if we're talking 20, 30 years from now, are people, are people going to know the name Lahane in his space? I think probably right now we've got the, this is the name brand. This is a series. People know what you're going to get. On the other hand, people know what you're going to get. So it's hard to get excited about and find a bunch of mm-hmm. new readers for Small Mercies by Dennis Lehane. I think I'm sticking with Maggie Smith okay. here. Dennis Lehane is almost definitely going to beat her in sales. <laughs> but in yeah, terms maybe. of like longevity, people talking about it with each other, something in the zeitgeist, mm-hmm. I think that the Smith has a greater chance. Okay. I think that's there. fair. Yeah. I think that's fair. Next up, David Grand's The Wager, coming out April 18th. David mm. Grand. I guess zeitgeist is a good word because we've had the gathering storm clouds. And I'm looking at the cover of The Wager, which is about a shipwreck <laughs> and mutiny and murder. So it's, it, it's this is mm-hmm. not a uh, random metaphor. 
The Storm Clouds of Killers of the Flower Moon, both as a text itself, that book is really good, and it's become a staple of the narrative nonfiction genre, and one of the probably best examples of it, frankly, a popular narrative nonfiction, Killers of the Flower Moon. And we've got Marty Scorsese and DiCaprio, who've been doing sort of pub on Grand's behalf for like three years while they're making this movie. Yeah. <laughs> three years for a three and a half hour movie. Yeah. Um, whew, this one's tough. I... I think David Grant is going to knock out Maggie I think so Smith. Too. It's a it's just big news that there is a new David Grant. He has enough name recognition among folks who read that kind of narrative nonfiction. He gets in there in a way that few writers do. It's just really absorbing yeah. reading. And Father's Day is also Father's coming Day up. Is this coming is dad up. book. Tall ships. Just, this is literally tall yep. ships. <laughs> it is. It's perfect. Listeners of the BR pod yeah. will know that my Bob has had this pre-order. I was going to say, did he months. get it tattooed on his body? Can you... <laughs> there's, there's still time for that. Yeah. We'll see. Can we talk uh, about yeah, Grant's so now... hit rate for a minute? I just, I'm just looking yes. at his backlist. We've got Killers of the Flower Shoot, Moon 2017. Man. Lost mm -hmm. City of Z. Ever heard of it? Yep. Unbelievable. Yep. The Devil mm -hmm. and Sherlock Holmes. The White Darkness. And The Splendid and the Vile. That's an unbelievable yep. run. <laughs> Not one of those is bad. Not one of those is even B+. Those are A+. Narrative right. nonfiction, popular narrative nonfictions. I think he's the king of this. I think he's the I king he of the accessible narrative nonfiction. I, I think it's him now. Yeah, it's David Gran and our good friend. Oh, the Moneyball guy. Oh, Michael Lewis. Yeah, I, <laughs> Michael Lewis. I was like Michael Smith. Yeah, it's David Gran and Michael Lewis. Different flavors. Yeah, different um, flavors. Yeah. So okay, I, I would agree with you um, that the wager knocks out. Okay. Um, All right. Small mercies. The next one. You, you mentioned her name before. It's Happy Place by Emily Henry mm. coming out in October. It's a... Wait, coming out in October? I'm sorry, October. I'm sorry. I'm No, no, April. I just had a okay. brain fart about that. <laughs> coming out in April. Uh, it's an Emily Henry book. Uh, a couple who broke up months ago make a pact to pretend to still be together for their annual week-long vacation with their best yeah. friends in this glittering and wise... I'm reading the blurb. Uh, it looks like a Hem Emily Henry book mm -hmm. it walks like a henry emily henry book it's going to sell like an emily henry book and i think you can hear in both of our voices even now that that feels to us like both a strength for this book's <laughs> contention and a weakness for this book's contention yeah this one got a starred review in publishers weekly yeah. which is interesting tiktok is still a thing presumably it'll still be a thing in like mm -hmm. three weeks when this book comes out uh and emily henry's got a lot of juice there David Grant is David Grant, but ain't nobody competing with TikTok juice right now. So I think you're Emily Henry... You're gonna, you think it's going to outsell the way Yes. Yeah. yeah. And she's just got such an accumulated fandom. David Grant is who I'm putting my money on for the long run. We're more likely to be talking about David Grant in five or 10 years because we've been talking about David yeah. Grant for five or 10 years. Uh, but I think Emily Henry in... Short term, folks are going to talk about it. It's going to go all over social media. She will get the book club readers. This thing where romance is going mainstream is very cool, and I'm super into it. Uh, the the mainstreaming of romance and sort of removing all of the like taboo or stigma around that that uh, corner of genre fiction is a real service to readers. I feel very torn about this, but I think it's Emily Henry. Can I try to turn you around on it knocking out Please. the wager real quick? <laughs> Here's the thing. Um, the Emily Henry book is going to sell and it's going to sell very well into the summer. And then in six months, there's going to be another Emily Henry book that looks That's a lot true. like it. And, and, or there's going to be other romance TikTok books in this commercial mm. romance space. 
and the wager is going to be on end of year lists yes, and gift guides. Yeah. And the Killers of the Flower Moon is going to come out. Mm-hmm. And David Grant's going to be on Front Street some doing that. Nominations for things. Yes. Okay, yeah. Let's stick with the wager. That'll make my heart happy. Yeah. Okay. No, no shots at Happy Place. <laughs> but like one of the things the romance writers do so well is they write a lot of these. Grant writes a book every four years. And That's true. It's more of an event. It's more of an event. So there we go. All right. Next up. All right. T.J. Klune op- occupies a very unusual spot in the books and reading lineup. And I don't know what to do with it because we talked <laughs> about this when we were doing a seasonal draft um, earlier about how the house in the Cerulean Sea is one of the recent phenomenons. Um, and he's carved out a space for himself that is like commercially popular spec fic, right? Um, mm-hmm, and the lives like of puppets sounds even weirder than under the whispering door house in Cerulean Sea, uh, to the point where it's about puppets living in trees, and it's sort of based on Pinocchio and Swiss Family Robinson and Wall-E. I really like this idea. I'm going to read this book. This will be my first clune. I've been circling Cerulean Sea forever, but in the terms of keeping up with the discourse no one cares about really in the world of books, mm-hmm. I want to sort of be on this. It has a 400,000 print run, which is huge for a book like that this. That is huge. I don't know what to do with this. I, the only thing I knew was to put on the list and talk to you about it for a few minutes. Yeah, it's really interesting. The smartest bet for anything like this is to think it will come out of the gate on that huge print run and then, you know, we'll see recession to the mean. Yeah. And... It's really difficult to repeat big surprise success like House in the Cerulean Sea was. Mm -hmm. For what it's worth, that's the one that the more civilian readers in my life are just now discovering. That's right. Yeah, the late adopters. I'm starting. Yep. Yeah. I'm just starting to get texts from the people who like books but don't pay attention to them professionally about, have Mm -hmm. you heard of this Cerulean Sea book? So I'm going to stick with the waiter here. Yeah. I think that. TJ Klune will come out of the gate with meaningful sales and the, his fans will be very excited. This sounds like a tougher sell for someone who hasn't already read him. So yeah, those folks who are on the long point. tail and are just discovering House in the Cerulean Sea, maybe they'll be open to TJ Klune in general after that. But if you aren't familiar with him, this is a pretty weird pitch to start with. So, yeah. yeah, I'm sticking with David Grin. Yeah, okay, I think that's fair. Um, next up is Living Remedy by Nicole Chung. Um, mm. Memoir. Nicole Chung has carved out a spot for herself as a sensitive erudite memoirist of her own experience, but then also her own experience can be bridged into larger things. Um, basically, trying to understand the lives of her parents. She is a, uh adoptee. Um, and her parents are white and she grew up in a very white Oregon hometown and basically was upwardly mobile, but also some stuff happened. She's going to be one of these people. It sounds like who's going to write memoirs of different stages of her life. And I'm looking forward Mm -hmm. to every stage we've talked to. I've talked about this privately before she has quite a following in the literary memoir world. Hasn't quite broken out. She sold very well. She's moved up in terms of the prestige and sort of the profile of the imprint she's working with. No, no shots, but this is what happens sometimes. Um, the comps are like Somebody's Daughter, The Beauty and Breaking by Michelle Harper. I think those are aspirational for this book. And so 
it, it would be a stretch for it to have the kind of sales and recognition that somebody's daughter get. And I don't know that that turned out to be a giant seller. I think it did pretty well. The Beauty and Breaking, I think, has had some staying power. I know that's a book mm-hmm. you really like. So I think for the tote bag crowd, this is going to be a huge hit and the people are going to be talking and you're going to see, if you're, if you're on Twitter and you see literary writers, they're going to be tweeting about this book more than, say, T.J. Klune or The Wager probably. But is that enough, Rebecca, do you think, to um, fire shots over the bow of David Grant? I do think so. I think this has Reese's Book Club potential okay. written all over it. Okay. And it has the ability to get into like the broad book club crowd to talk about the kinds of issues that mainstream readers who want to be just sort of, you know, familiar with what's going on in the world or to, you know, sound like they are to be comfortable talking about difficult things. This is a way into those that like Camp Zero doesn't give you, it sounds like. Camp Zero, just to go back to the top of the show, that like dystopian sex worker thing is a real hard pitch for some readers. I think that this is more accessible. Um, Nicole Chung writes about challenging things, but in a pretty accessible and like non-judgmental way. Like one of the things that made somebody's daughter Mm -hmm. i think so powerful was that ashley ford talked about really difficult experiences but wasn't like ragey and judgmental about her parents on the page and that made it possible for people to engage with the story and either ask questions about their own upbringing or their own parenting sounds like chung is doing something similar here that was definitely my experience with Mm -hmm. her first book um She's both a literary darling and also really starting to gain some popularity. I think all you can ever know was a bestseller. I mean, yeah, quote unquote right. bestseller, but I think a legitimate in its space. The, I think the kind so, of yeah. book that and, sells and starting to. I think she really has a shot at some end of year awards uh-huh. and the best of lists. Like long term sales numbers, Gran is probably going to beat her but i think the other quadrants this is a really strong contender so i'm actually going to make there's something stickier about this for the the readers who buy most of the books which is women (laughs) yeah that's a great point i really like your your idea or maybe there's higher variance with living remedy maybe i'd say if it becomes an Mm -hmm, oprah pick mm -hmm. or a reese pick or it's the national wins the national book award for for nonfiction, or makes the 10 best of the year it could sell a lot more copies, right? It's it's a historical fiction about tall ships is the flip side of that. It's historical <laughs> fiction or a historical nonfiction about tall ships. Right. Yeah. That's like a really deep quality dad book, but you're not going to sell it yeah. to, you know, the average woman browsing the mm-hmm. new release table at Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Um, so that's the number nine. We've got one more pick and it's a little bit of a bummer that it's another debut. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. Mm. I read this book. I really liked it. It's super strange. Um, I kind of just wanted to talk about it for, for a minute. So this is my <laughs> Let's show. Do it. Um, also, a new dazzling essential American voice, that blurb, 99% of the time I don't care. Fine. Okay. This is what happens. This is from George Saunders. That's the mm. blurb, which knows from dazzling, knows from strange. <laughs> sure does. He sure does. Uh, he's crossing imprint too. I always look for this. This is this is a, a flat iron title. Saunders is Random House Double Day. It doesn't appear. He's a PRH yes. author. Mm-hmm. So crossing the going to the other side of the aisles. There's lots of aisles. It's like one of those mega. Maybe churches. they have the There's same agent. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Um, Monica Brashears is a is a southern a contemporary southern gothic novel set in Appalachia. I think it's Tennessee or mm-hmm. Kentucky. Um, who is living in a 
ramshackle house. Her mom has just died. She's working at a gas station. And someone comes along and says, have you considered doing any modeling? Which, if you know anything about anything, you should be like, run away. And that's her first <laughs> thought, right? Okay. She's like, uh-huh. am I going to get human trafficked here? But she doesn't have anywhere else to go. I don't want to say too much else about it. Be- What's the title? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, House of Cotton by Monica Brashear. Okay. House of Cotton. It's not very long. So I think you can take a gamble on it as a reader yourself. 304 pages. It reads faster than that. It's quite strange. It's quite dark. Um, I would say some, I don't know what specific content stuff to say, but it's weird. It's weird and strange. It's Southern, it's a Gothic novel. Okay. That, that should mm-hmm, tell you mm-hmm. on the tin. It's, it has a 250,000 print run, which for a debut novel is big. That's um, a big deal. So this is really, I'm, I'm looking at this as I get long odds on this becoming a thing, but maybe if I'm going to put a chip on the roulette wheel, maybe I get slightly better odds than just the one out of 36 I would normally get from a literary um, spec fic crossover. Uh, I think the comps here are interesting. This is what they're hoping for. If it becomes such a fun age, if it becomes mm. of woman in salt, if it becomes migrations, it could be the book of the month, Rebecca. That, that's my case. It for could. It. it could. I would love to see that happen. This is going near the top of my list yep. for April. Certainly. I had also, I had seen that George Saunders blur mm-hmm. pretty, that's pretty good stuff. Pretty weird and pretty dark though is, is a tough sell. For look, it's foolish for to pick it. I just out. wanted to put yeah. it on here and say this is I'm the problem. I'm super <laughs> glad that you did. I'm super glad that you picked it. I would love to be surprised and see this become the it book of April. Not to like knock any of the other titles, or especially the Living Remedy, which is going to end up being the winner mm-hmm. <laughs> of yep. of this episode. But just because a weird book that takes a flyer at some difficult material and a publisher who puts some money to print 250,000 yep. copies behind a voice like that is a that's a big vote of confidence there's probably a pretty big ad campaign coming out around yep. that too they right. spent a lot of money to print all those books i would love to see it happen i love to be surprised by readers in that way but i'm going to for the sake of winning this game yes. i'm going to stick with nicole chung a living remedy as my my strongest bet for the it book of April. I think that's a good pick. Um, let's do a quick debrief. What'd you think? How'd you feel about this gimmick, Rebecca? What do you think about this structure? I really liked this. There's something about comparing the titles one to one rather than starting with a list of 10 and trying to order them. Like I would have had to do the homework, I think to put them (laughs) in order in advance, but doing the one to one comparison of, can it beat this? And you know, whoever wins this round uh, just continues to advance. That was really fun. I like this format. Congratulations to Nicole Chung um, for winning <laughs> a game that has no referees, no rules, and really no endpoint. Uh, so we don't know. I don't know how we'll know if we got this right or yeah. wrong. When will we decide if we were right about April? Maybe at the end of the year, it'd be interesting to go back and say, okay, what were the books of the year and sort of place them in their month of publication mm-hmm. and see how close we got. I would, you, the, the, your Bayesian prior for our guests here, and I think I agree with you, the wager, I think it's a 1A, 1B if we were doing it kind of like that. Yeah. I, I would like to have two horses. Um, I'd like to have slips on two horses. But I think that makes sense. But here's the thing. We're going to be wrong. Something's going to come up that I didn't make my list, right? That's always a possibility. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, here's another thing. If we were taking bets and you could get odds on this, you, you should probably take the field against any of our picks, right? That's about how true. this thing goes. But <laughs> yeah. That's the way that goes. So I'd love feedback from listeners out there. A brand new email just for the show, first edition at bookriot.com. There'll be a link in the show notes. If there's a book I missed, 
Rebecca and I missed, you want to take issue with something we said, or there's a bit of information you know, um, or just comments on the format. Is this the kind of format you'd like to see us do every month um, to look at the books that are coming out? Rebecca, I really appreciate your willingness to be lassoed in to something that I'm just trying. And unfortunately, <laughs> your willingness to do that means that you'll be corralled increasingly and often when it comes to the you show. Know, I haven't met a Jeff experiment yet that I didn't want to jump on board for at least one time. <laughs> so That's what I'm all the boys to like here. to hear. Rebecca Chinsky, <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Today's episode is brought to you by Tor Books. So if you are a fan of epic fantasy, if you're a fan of Scott Lynch and or Joe Abercrombie, but you want something a little different, you want a hero who's like a bit of a mess, then The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan is for you in its Academy dropout slash disgraced noble heir Lacan Cordova's life is in shambles. All he's got going for him is one, he is a card sharp of considerable skill and two, a lot of maybe potentially a little too much wine. So they're, you know, those are the positives. So when the bizarre murder of his father robs him of even the off chance of redemption, Lacan decides to make amends another way. He's going to unravel the mystery behind the killing, even if it takes him to the underbelly of Sophrona, a city of danger, secrets, and merchant princes. Finding the truth is one thing. Finding the truth and staying alive is like a whole other thing. So make sure to check out The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan on sale May 7th. And thanks again to Tor Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eilin. Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increasingly more sus when he and Shuei barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke. And 
who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. Coming up in the hammer spot, Yadon Israel, senior editor at Simon & Schuster. Uh, Yadon and I talked for almost two hours, and I'm trying to get it into a 30-minute segment, so I'm just taking bits and pieces. I'll release it in some other way. I have to have Yadon back. We talked about the book business, what it means to be a reader, how hard it is to get books in the world and get people to care about them. I first thought about talking to Yadon because he has this new project called the Advanced Readers Club of trying to get review copies. These are early copies, pre-publication copies of books into the hands of different kinds of people, not necessarily working in the literary press, review establishment, publicity, whatever, sort of regular readers, but not regular readers. They're power readers, they're connectors, they're influencers, but not in a TikTok, Instagram way, though they could be, but in a community kind of a way. You'll hear us talk about the book he's launching the Advanced Readers Club with. It's called Soil by Camille T. Dungy. She's a poet. It's a memoir meditation on what it means to be a gardener, especially as a black woman. So check that out. Again, we'll talk about it a little bit. I don't know that I actually mentioned the name because I'm cutting this together. So I wanted to make sure you knew it was Soil by Camille T. Dungy. We had a really good conversation. So uh, yeah, here's you done. I think that there's a diff- inherent difficulty in publishing yeah. a book, yeah. right? Because it's like you're creating something that no one knows about and you're trying to put it on people's radar in a finite amount of time. I think that a lot of how publishing functions as a framework, right? And and I say this, everything I say here, I'm, I'm going to be like really like with litigious almost about this is like, <laughs> this reflects my genuine opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. Israel, not a reflection of Simon issues of the company or the imprint or anything mm-hmm. at large. Um, publishing, I think that there is a theory about a lot of this is largely about culture theory and about what you believe and how you believe culture moves. Um, and there's this sort of, it's almost like a Reaganomics, like trickle down theory of like, well, if we give it to the top people in society, it'll trickle down to other people. And one of the things that I am a proponent, I am, a, I am, you know, being a child of the internet, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of data. There's so much consumer data about consumer habits, about how people buy books. There was one report that showed like the top 10 reasons why people buy books, like the average everyday person buy books. Number one was known author. Number two was close friend. Mm -hmm. I personally did not pay attention to three, four, five, and six because I only care about the top (laughs) two. New York Times reported 2020 being the best year for publishing, um, particularly like physical publishing in the history of books. And in that year, the two categories of books that performed the highest were books that were by known authors and backlist titles, right? And for people who don't know, a backlist title is a book that is a year removed from publication. The books that did the best were either known authors or backlist, which means it's like either this is somebody we already know, or this is a book that had been talked about and people have known about for years and they just never got to. Even in the year where publishing did its best, 96 to 98% of the authors who were debuted authors sold less than 5,000 copies, right? That is not a defect of publishing. That is the feature. And so, and I'm asking somebody, the average person who spots four books to either buy five or to make one of the books that which I'm responsible for bringing into the world 
part of that four. Those very real, like almost uncomfortable stakes that like we are doing something that doesn't need to be done and yet we care about it. And we have to now communicate to people that while you do not need this thing, we still hope that you would invest your time and your money into it. You're thinking in terms of respect for that person's life, right? That you're trying to right. sell into their life, right? Because part of it is money and that's a huge part of it, but also it's time. Um, if I'm going to buy the book, that's one thing, but if I'm going to sit down and read it, that's a completely other thing at the same time. Seven to double, 10 hours. That's a double Seven investment. Yeah. And when you're bringing in the idea of data that's not getting looked at, you're looking at like the top reasons people read a particular kind of book or choose a book, you're saying there's kind of an inefficiency here in this whole way we've done this. Well, let me let me let me be clear. It's not the top reason people read a book. It's the top reason yeah. why people buy a book, right? right? Because, because they're never going to have right. How many pages? Will never, unless you making people, unless you make people do book reports on every yeah. book they read. There is right. no real way to know if someone's read a book from beginning to end. Yeah, unless you're quizzing them. Or to the half, or they picked, did they even get it to 10, page 10? Did they do it at fair, all? Fair enough, right? Yeah. So, like, there's no sort of way to capture that. That's no, yeah. there's no qualitative study about that besides like mm -hmm. a test. So, then I find myself at a conundrum of like, all right, so what matters to me as an editor? Mm -hmm. Do I, does it matter that a book that I am working in conjunction with the publisher and the writer? To bring into the world is it matter if the new york times if it gets all this critical acclaim and yet it sells you know less than doesn't 10, earn out, doesn't doesn't help that yeah. author have a career yeah. doesn't become yeah. a thing yeah. in the world that people care about it right right or do is it then my position is like you know i take a firm stance is like you know i can accept i would love a new york times book review i would love a la review i would love all those things but it's like why am I here? Because as an editor, I have to make my case to, to other people in editorial, my boss, the publisher, the publicity team, the marketing team. And then the publicity team has to make their case to the editors who want to review mm -hmm. books. And the marketing team has to make their case to like the people who buy books and the sales team has to make their, you know, case to the, to the booksellers. And we're all making our case to someone else who has hopes will make their case to the end user. And I'm like, that kind of function yeah. can cause a kind of conflation of almost like a crisis of identity where we th where we conflate the people we sell to as the end user and they're not right so like new york times is not the end user for any of the books that we publish uh, a bookseller is not even the end user they are a intermediary that helps us theoretically get to that reader who mm -hmm. only becomes a reader after they bought the book and so like by like kind of breaking down the business of it is like, okay, there's, there's a lot of work to be done to remind myself of who actually represents, like who is the market? I think about, well, how much work and labor is actually being cultivated and really understanding the book buying market. For example, statistically, this is, this is, this is like public data. Black women with college degrees between the ages of 25 and 40 or something like that are, statistically speaking, the highest, the most book buying demographic across the country. College educated black women 
who make above 70,000 buy the most books, right? That's data. Like that's like to the point where it's like, that's a fact. Yeah. And yet you still have publishers who are not pivoting Mm -hmm. towards that demographic. That's a sales point. Yeah. Right. So it shows that there is still a lot of work that needs to be done about how even larger publishers reconcile data into their publishing practices, into their acquisition practices, Mm -hmm. into their marketing practices. So then what are we doing? Right. Like, are we publishing books? Are we allowing the notion that because 80 percent of we know that as a publishing industry, 80 percent of the books will fail. We're more or less accepting any failure as being a feature of the industry. What's so amazing to me is that when a book does break out, it has a cultural weight that no one could stop. Like, you know, if it becomes part of the culture, if it becomes part of the now or the forever. Good luck stopping it. Like right. by the same token, it's hard to get going. Once it gets going, it's hard to stop. Well, okay. So I like what I like the what, what you're saying. Here's how I would I would add to what you're saying. Books. When I talk about luxury, I'm talking about time. When I'm talking about yeah. time, I'm talking about yeah. forever. That, and that's such a, in a lot of ways, a very intimidating premise for which to create from. Mm-hmm. Cause from that standpoint, it goes, well, why create anything? It's like, yes, yes. But if you still feel the necessity to create with those terms, then you've got something worth creating. That's what I believe. Mm-hmm. Like this is then worth the paper is printed on. This is worth that space that it has to fight for in someone's house. And if I can't justify that, uh, this ain't the book. I'm, I would rather just buy the book when it comes out. Well, it makes sense then when you think of the stakes being that high, then to think about what isn't being done that could help that book become a thing that could help it find. There you go. There you go. Like, and that's, that's, that's why the advanced reader club exists. It's like, these are, these are resources. These advanced reader copies exist. They typically go to the same people, same people, right? And get the um, same results, the same 80, the 20 same failure. Results. Yeah. And it's like, and then so many of them get ended up getting put in an incinerator or like turned into, and it's just like, yo, like if we going to make something that at its heart is wasteful, <laughs> like, let's just be frank. Like it's wasteful. Like I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm in a wasteful industry. I understand mm-hmm. that. Like, how do we make this work, this waste meaningful? Mm. Right. Like at the end of the day, you don't need a book in your house. You don't. But if you are going to have a book in your house, it's a book that's worth having in your house. All right. Tell me about Soil, the book that's the first of this Advanced Readers Club and the one that kind of got you thinking about stuff in in a real practical way. We're going to do something different about it. What I will say is that I am appreciative of the fact that like this happens to be the book that launches it because this is a book by a woman who is, and I told her this, like on some, like, how dare you believe this, the audacity of, of it's like, this is going to get this woman to MacArthur. Mm. Um, this, this, this book is literally creating is extending a canon about the relationship between black Americans specifically and with black people in the diaspora at large to reconcile with their relationship with land, right? Like nature as a grand scheme of things have always been, has historically been seen in the West as the 
the sort of like eminent domain of, of white men, right? So much so that like nature writing is when you think of not, you, you know, maybe not you per se. I got you. But I when I think, when I, when someone says, oh, a nat- nature, you seldom see people, one, period. Like not, and we're not even talking white, black, like you just don't, you see, you see trees, mm-hmm. you see birds, you see, you know, you see animals, insects, but you don't think of people as natural which is already part of why we, I think we have the kind of environmental disaster is like when we conceive of ourselves as being other than the world than which we inhabit, it makes sense why we would want to destroy this world because we're already coming at it from this sort of like man versus world. Oh, we have to conquer this because we're not of it. So if you see yourself as being part of the natural order of things, you relate to nature differently. Now, specifically for people who have been because of enslavement, because of the diaspora, because of urbanization, all these different things, then don't see themselves as having claim to nature. You have a double injury of one, not seeing humans as being a part of it, but then not seeing yourself as being in it, which means it then feels unnatural for you to be in this world. And you kick in and out of that, you create these narratives of like, why is it necessary for people to say things that are seemingly basic, like a black life matters is because it's like any life that's quote unquote other does not seen as being indicative of what the world functions as, as a default. Right. And then like what the default is, is like, you don't question a tree's growth. Mm-hmm. You understand? Like, it's like, oh, like that tree shouldn't grow. It's like, no, a tree should grow. But when it's like a person's in your neighborhood, it's like, why is that person here? It's like, why shouldn't that person be here? Right? Like, if anything, is like there's a certain un- there's a certain sense of unnaturalness about how we've created these ways that people don't belong. So, like, in the grand scheme of things, is like that, that, like that, that, like what this woman is bringing what 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 Camille is bringing with this book is really like a really tangible way of thinking about the environment by like linking it like one of the first stories in there is like about the day that she orders soil to arrive and she ordered it without consulting her husband not like on some like I need to get permission but like logistical this is level the person, yeah like on a logistical yeah. level, like yeah. I did not organize this with anybody else and all this soil <laughs> arrived on the windiest day of the season and my husband is about to go to work. And if because of my selfish decision, this soil could get blown away because I didn't do the work of like making mm-hmm. sure that I got the community involved in what I'm doing. Right. Like that's what that first chapter sets up. And that was that, that was not the original first chapter that came hmm. forth. But because of revision, I was like, that notion has to be put up front. Right. And she was talking about like this in that chapter. I see you've read it. She talks about the the white poets who only read their own poems. And like, yeah. and, and, and before that, I was like, but Camille, do you not see how you're kind of doing working from right. the same kind of framework that these poets are functioning from? And, it, and part of what was heartening about that opening was because it was her taking accountability for the ways that her aspirations to be seen as a part of this canon came at a price to the people around her like who pays for our desires to be seen as these kinds of figures in nature like what's the price of that yeah right like you know so it was like a wave to first dispel like damn like in order for me to even write this book i gotta first show how i was 
and like complicit with this aspiration of like, no, I wanted to be a nature writer. And what did that mean? That I was willing to just disregard anybody else's yeah, perform nature, concern. perform gardening. On yeah, my own. yeah, yeah. And this performative and gardening almost yeah. meant that my soil wasn't even a, I wasn't even able to build the thing without the community. It's like nobody gets what they get without community. And that's why, like, one of the things I've even in this conversation, I've been really cautious of is like when I say like, oh, I'm edit. No, it's like a book that I'm responsible for. Like when I'm on the page, it's like that's that's the extent to which it's individual. But I don't acquire a book by myself. It's not like a person yeah. that admits a book and like, I'll give you this much money. I got to run it through all these people. And that's not a detriment to the, that's not a bug of the job. That's the feature of it. Yeah. You have all these people collaborating on bringing something to life. What better book yeah. to exemplify the collaborative communal nature of publishing than a book that's really showing that community co and collaboration should be, we should regard those things as natural. I think that's a good place to end. God damn it. We could go for two more hours. I've got so many questions for you, man. Do I appreciate your time and your honesty and Likewise. candor. This was amazing. All right. I appreciate Looking it. Forward. Take care. Likewise. Talk Cheers. to you. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Coming up next, Sarah Bakewell, the author of many books on philosophy and the humanities that are popular, that people read and bought. I bought them. I read them. So did my dad. Her new book is called Humanly Possible, and it's about the broad sweep of humanism over several centuries, who the humanists were, what they believed, what they fought about, where we are now. I first encountered her with her book on Michelle de Montaigne called How to Live, and I really liked it. I've been a Michelle de Montaigne 
fan for a long, long time, 16th century philosopher, writer, generally considered the creator of what we now know as the essay, who inherited some money, minor French nobility, but used all that clout to basically hole up for as much of his life as he could, writing and reading. Uh, unbelievably influential to me as a 15-year-old, kind of embarrassing, but I'm not ashamed here. Uh, also would have been a fantastic podcaster. So we start off talking about Montaigne, but in general, we move on to the rest of the book. Really excited to have her. So stick around for that after the break. This is Sarah Bakewell. So we're going to talk about humanism and her new book, Humanly Possible. How did you come to do this book next? What was the hook that came from the Montaigne and other things that you've done to get into this book directly? There was definitely a connection. I was interested to explore the connections between different aspects of humanism that I discovered I'd already been writing about and thinking about for some time without think particularly labeling it as that. Mm -hmm. But Montaigne is certainly a huge connection there, seeing him as a humanist. It's like I'd written about all sorts of aspects of what he was doing. That was one of them, but I hadn't been particularly focused on that one. And it really struck me that he is pivotal in the story because he's someone who was writing within the humanist literary classical tradition and referring to all these great classical authors that he loved and to the the humanist training that he himself had had through childhood and but he was also rebelling against it mm-hmm. you know rejecting it being quite irreverent about it saying things like you know cicero is nothing but hot air whereas that was you know all the humanists adored cicero and you know this was you don't say that sort of thing but adding into the mix was also the fact that i have really all always been a humanist as Mm. in the definition that tends to be predominant now at least in the english-speaking world which is someone who lives a life that where the sense of meaning and the kind of moral sense come from sources that are not connected to religion of any kind, not connected to religious dogma. And I started to think, God, there's actually so many things that I've always been interested in that all touch on the theme of humanism, but it's different kinds of humanism maybe. And I wanted to find out more about that. And I wanted to explore those connections in particular that that link all those things together. It definitely feels like, I think, You can tell me if I'm wrong, but the way the book is structured represents that sense of exploration, right? It's not sort of Bertrand Russell's history of Western philosophy, where there's a chapter about this school of thought, followed by this school of thought, followed by this school of thought. You proceed sort of orderly through time, but you're not restricting yourself in that chapter that time. It's because even the chapter headings feel like, you know, an older model where it's, you know, a dash and then here's one thing that's going to be in this chapter and a dash. So delightful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like a a miscellany kind of element to it. Well, yeah, I, I, exactly. I mean, I wanted to, part of the reason even for those, that style of chapter subheading was that I wanted it to feel a bit playful and explorative. And also I wanted to make clear that it's not, a comprehensive history of humanism. It's not a encyclopedia of mm-hmm. humanism. I mean, that would be, I haven't got enough lifetimes available to achieve Well, you that. tell and, stories about people trying to write encyclopedias <laughs> and giving up after two volumes or getting thrown into prison or, you know, it doesn't go well for people writing encyclopedias in your no, book, I'm exactly. afraid. Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, I didn't want to get caught up in that. But also I just thought I'm not, I don't have the expertise to write about yeah. the entire history of humanism. And also, it, I was very aware that 
almost entirely apart from a you know few things here and there but it's it really is very much a story of the um european humanist mm-hmm. tradition with of course there are some americans that feature very prominently mm-hmm. in it and there's a few other people from other parts of the world but it it is absolutely overwhelmingly predominantly you know this is a book about the european humanist tradition and that is it. I don't want to say limitation, but it is a limitation. I mean, that's what I was writing about because, um, again, I wanted to keep some connection between the people. So although it covers yeah. 700 years, a lot of these people were, they had read each other's work. They were responding to it. They were, you know, trying to move in a different direction or advance what had been done before or, or react against what had been done before sometimes. And and so I wanted to, to keep some kind of boundary around it so that this a bit of continuity in how they responded to each other and the fact that they read each other's work. It is um, it, kind of an exploration. It's kind of playful in, in that I was myself discovering, and I've really done this with all of my books, I was discovering it as I went along. <laughs> I think that, again, it's so opposite of how you're taught in school about intellectual history, which, you know, it's a, usually a history of isms or uh, Idics or something like that, and the people are part of it, but they're in service to the um, the noun or the school of thought uh, from which they're mm-hmm. now you know, sort of retroactively ascribed. But then, really focusing on individual humans doing the work of humanism at the same time, that makes it feel, I don't know, alive in a way that I think it makes it especially fun because these seems like they're you create characters and follow their personalities and their foibles. I think makes it extremely readable and fun and because it, it can feel moldy in a way they get these are old texts they're centuries old and it really comes alive here it struck me reading it again that you come at it as a late comer to history right where the rise of a certain humanistic inquiry is baked into the pie by this especially after world war ii where most of us who are you know thinking and, and reading and being educated happen forget or didn't know or it was underplayed how contested humanism was all along. So many of these authors had their books banned, burned, they were imprisoned, they were killed, they were hounded. You know, Thomas Mann sending his kids to go get his manuscripts out of his house. Um, E.M. Forster mm-hmm. putting the, the manuscript for Maurice in his drawer because he's afraid of publishing it. And this is a story that continues. A lot depends on what kind of humanism. There are many humanists around the world who's lives are in danger. I'm sure Humanists International probably is the source of this, that there's really 80 countries or so around the world where it's dangerous to some degree to speak openly about being a humanist or um, questioning the religious orthodoxy in various ways. There's, uh, I think, 13, 14 countries where and run right up to the death penalty. So that, that, I think, is something never to forget about what the humanists of the past suffered and how they had to hide and conceal what they were doing and at what danger they were sometimes in, which they were, that this story is not over. I mean, I, I very much tell a story in the book of the humanism always accompanied by a parallel story of what I kind of just for convenience call anti-humanism. It is like a shadow story that goes alongside mm. it. I don't believe in some sort of great uh, glorious victory for, for humanism. It's all, we, we've the... figured it out. Everyone's fine. No, I mean, it's just yeah, going to be exactly. cool from here on out. <laughs> what should we be working on or what, what sticks in your mind is something that is a frontier of humanism still? I think one aspect of humanism that is often um, not 
well understood by um, people who, and a, a lot of people don't know very much about humanism, including some humanists. I mean, I went along <laughs> right, not knowing, right, you know, yeah. not knowing that I was a humanist for a very long time. That's quite a common experience, I think. Um, then you come across it and you think, oh, so I'm a humanist too. Yeah, right. That yeah. explains it. But um, one of the things that I think is really not well understood about humanism is how it differs from, say, the kind of pure, purely a matter of skepticism or, or radical right. atheism. Humanism is more positive. Humanism is about positive values. And I think that's where the difference is. And specifically, one of the features of humanism that I think is is not well known is that it really stresses our connection with other people and also with the rest of the natural world. So it's not exclusively, it's not some kind of anthropocentrism, which is, you know, disrespectful to the rest of of the life forms on this earth. So those are two things. One is that's not well understood. And the other thing is that um, this sense of if there is going to be a foundation for morality, which is not that of the institutional religions and doesn't depend on any supernatural belief, then it probably is to be found in our connection with other people and connection mm -hmm. with those around us and the the, the shared sense of community and the shared humanity, the basic recognition of each other's humanity that that seems to most, for the most part, seems to come quite naturally to us. I mean, we're mm -hmm. social creatures. A lot of humanists will look for the heart of ethical life and moral life and also our sense of meaning as emerging from, from that connection. There's a famous line which I think captures that very well, which is often quoted by humanists. I am human and nothing human is alien to me. I, I consider mm -hmm. nothing human alien to me. It's It comes from the Roman playwright Terence in the first century AD. And it's uh, funny because it in the play that he, it appears in, it's actually a joke, really, because there's this guy who is uh, nosy about what all his neighbours are getting up to. And somebody else says to him, you know, why, why can't you mind your own business? Why are you always peering over your neighbour's fence? And and he says, as a as a wisecrack, really, he says, as a gag, he says, what, what can I do? You know, I'm I'm human. <laughs> Everything human is of interest to me. So it's it's a joke. And then it goes actually on to become one of the deepest philosophical statements of humanism, which I think is is quite funny. You know, these things do change their their relevance over time. There's an Arthur C. Clarke novel that you talk about as being meaningful to you both as an early reader, but also that you've come back later and reconsiders as a humanist or as a humanist problem or document. So what was it about that um, Arthur C. Clarke novel that got you so interested and continues to you know, be generative for you? I've always been a keen reader of science fiction. This is one, it's called Childhood's End, and it tells of a, of a future, it imagines a future, in which humans are, are ticking along and suddenly these aliens arrive. But the first thing they do is give us lots of wonderful things. And there's this great line, actually, where they lay on all these TV channels and there's so much that you can watch. I think it's something like 50 hours a day of TV. <laughs> they sort of just make us very comfortable, but they quietly phase out, you know, humans as they are. And with coming generations, new humans are born which have a connection to the overmind as it's called and then even more generations come along and they just 
really cease to be physical beings at all. You get this, mm. these generations of people that just stand around in the fields and, and eventually they just sort of melt upwards and all of physical reality on this planet is absorbed upwards into this giant transcendent shared universal mind. Mm-hmm. And it's quite mind, I mean, mind blowing, literally, really, it's, it's mind sucking up, mind, mind teleporting. Su- yeah, yeah. Something. Yeah. I mean, it's transcendent. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's a mystical transcendent conception of becoming one with the universe but it's also um, the idea of being becoming of a higher level of being, so somehow transcending the merely human everyday what we have now, and it it's an exciting thing to f- sort of imagine. But on the other hand, when I read it now, and this is the the point I make in the book when I tell that story right at the end of the book, is that now I tend to think about what's lost in all of that and what has emerged from that is no longer recognizably human at all because how can Mm. anything be human anymore if it doesn't have a body and mortality and all the details of our lives all the all the details of Mm. the planet that we occupy and and of our culture and our relationships and all the nitty-gritty of being human which is all somehow just it's all gone upwards into this you know transcendent realm the interesting thing is that a lot of mystic sort of mystical visions in religion also have the same structure Mm -hmm. really they show um some future state which is one of perfection and fulfillment um for which the and of course not all religion does this i'm not saying that it does at all but there is this strand that that says present reality doesn't count for much it's messy and might be a world of sin and that we really need to transcend that we need to redeem it but the um more humanist tradition would say well maybe yes maybe no whatever we don't know but the point is that you know we are here now this is the world that we live in this is where all our meaning comes from on an everyday Mm -hmm. basis there's a line from um, a 19th century American speaker and, and writer on general humanism and free thought called Robert G. Ingersoll. He came up with what he called the happiness creed, which is four lines long, really. It's, it's uh, happiness is the only good. The time to be happy is now. The place to be happy is here. The way to be happy is to make others so. And that last line is crucial, of course, because it's it's not just a selfish pursuit of happiness. And become it, recursive, right? It feeds back into the yeah, the but it also implies that you know, for it to be real happiness, it it must it can't be just a selfish, immediate you know seeking of your own personal gratification. It's it's about our connection with other people. So it brings us back to that uh, idea of the importance of connection again. That's it for the show. We're going to be back in two weeks on April nineteenth. Check us out then. Thanks to Don Israel, Sarah Bakewell, Rebecca Shinsky. Thanks to you. You can email me at firstedition at bookwright.com. Check the show notes to links to Instagram, Twitter, Substack. Really appreciate your time. Had a great time. Can't wait for the next one. Until then, read something great.